Hi, how's it going, everybody? And welcome to the Debutify podcast, the premier e-commerce podcast brought to you by Debutify. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and joining me today is Brent Zaradnik, the founder and CEO of AMZ Pathfinder, an Amazon advertising agency that works with brands to optimize their advertising presence on Amazon, increase conversion rates with content optimization, and drive external paid traffic from Google to their Amazon product catalog. On this episode, Brent and I talk about how to drive external traffic to your Amazon page, how to cut through the noise on Amazon, the importance of reviews, and much more. Here's our interview now. Brent, welcome to the show. Hey there. Hey, Alex. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Very happy to have you. So first off, why don't you tell me a little bit about your company, AMZ Pathfinder? Yeah, sure. So we're an Amazon services agency, primarily focusing on advertising, which is what we've done for many years. But now we do content services. That is to say, helping people's products and pages on Amazon look better. And we do external traffic too. So driving external traffic to the Amazon ecosystem. Those are kind of our, our three pillars these days. Great. And so you started this company about eight years ago, correct? Yeah, it's been a long time, actually, Alex. Uh, <laughs> I kind of fell into it. And I don't know if you want to get like too much into the backstory. But yeah, it was something that I kind of happened across by accident, having a background in paid search advertising with Google, and then uh, just having the fortune to kind of come across Amazon just as that wave was kind of cresting. So as I think most people should who find some sort of traction or success, there's also an element of like luck to these things, right? Sure. And, and that's, you know, part of the the question I was leading into in terms of like, Eight years ago in this industry is like a lifetime ago, if I'm being honest. And around that time period in 2015, that was when Amazon was really kind of elbowing its way away from the competition. You know, I remember first hearing about Amazon probably 20 years ago, maybe something like that. The first time it kind of really developed itself into the the zeitgeist was around that time period. So I'm interested in how that impacts the inception of AMZ Pathfinder. Yeah, sure. I'll try to, I'll try to trace a sort of timeline that might be interesting. So I would say, yeah, Amazon's been around since what, the late 90s. But for many years, Amazon was primarily a marketplace that's like what Amazon calls like 1P or vendor. So it's like Amazon approaches... Um, Adidas, and they say like, "Hey, we want to sell your shoes. You know, work with us, and we'll put them on our marketplace. You get distribution, and then they work with these like well-capitalized large brands that have existing distribution channels, like they're at you know Shoe Locker and like stuff like that." What really happened in the, I would say the the early 2010s, the teens. Do we have a name for that decade yet? The teens. <laughs> that sounds right. Yeah, which which is basically like. People started to do wholesale on Amazon. They started to do retail arbitrage, which is basically buy stuff from like a Walmart and then sell it for more on Amazon. Or wholesale is like work with a manufacturer who's not on Amazon, doesn't have distribution channels. And then that evolved into what became called like private label. And that craze, I think, really started to take off in, I would say, 2014, 2015. And that's also the same year, 2014, that Amazon advertising launched as a platform. When Amazon said, hey, we have all these eyeballs, we can make our own retail media network. Why don't we do this? It's obviously a huge source of revenue for companies like Google that kind of pioneered that. And you know they have billions of dollars of revenue based on that model. So Amazon kind of did both those things simultaneously. And now fast forward to a present day, looking at Amazon's quarter one results, 60% of the sales that happen on their marketplace are 3P sellers. So they're like individuals or small companies. Sometimes that's a one-man show with a couple assistants. 
Sometimes it's um, you know a whole team. Like a lot of our clients have you know, you know team of full time employees, warehouse, three uh, P centers, and everything like that. But they're not Adidas. You know, they're not like the mega corporations that we all know that have been around for like a million years. There are people that started on Amazon. They're Amazon native. And so that's kind of when that all kicked off, I would say, 2014, 2015. No, that's great. I appreciate the little rundown there. How do businesses selling on Amazon drive that external traffic to their catalog on the marketplace? The main method for success for a lot of Amazon native brands has been successfully, let's say, optimizing in some cases over the years using a little bit of uh, what you call like black hat tactics, like gamifying Amazon's algorithm, right? But Amazon has cleaned that up in the past two, three years way better. Like it's much harder to get fake reviews. These are all good things, by the way. I'm not saying this is bad. Yeah, <laughs> much yeah. harder to get fake reviews, you know, because consumer trust is being restored there. There's not as much like black hat activity going on where people are taking each other's listings down and stuff like that. The primary method, I'm going to get to your question. The primary method has been figuring out the on Amazon SEO because Amazon has its own search engine, has its own catalog methods, has its own structured data. And so being able to be found and seen and rank there is really the key. Now in 2022 and early 2023, it's become harder and harder to become differentiated like on platform because everyone um, has has found that level. Like anyone who's competent is doing that stuff and it doesn't really set you apart anymore. It doesn't make you special. It's just like table stakes, right? So now people are using other methods to drive external traffic. And there's so many of those. I'm happy to like dive into them. A lot of them are traditional. Some of them are newer, but it's all, it's all very interesting there. <laughs> I talked with, I want to say his name was Ryan Flanagan about some of these black hat techniques and how Amazon is like seriously cracked down on them, maybe even overcorrected in a little bit of an effect, but that's kind of for a later day. So what are some of those specific services that AMZ Pathfinder offers to increase visibility and ROI for companies? Yeah, I'll talk about ours first, because we actually do just like one arrow in the quiver. Like the quiver is full of many arrows, and we really specialize in just a couple. So when it comes to external traffic, we're really big fans of taking Google search traffic, which has you know billions of people every day looking for products and channeling some of that to Amazon. And so taking some of that demand, that search intent, those customers who may or may not actually be Amazon shoppers already and moving them over to Amazon and getting them to buy there. So this is like, how do I really position it? Think of the river of Amazon ad spend that our clients are already using. This is like a small tributary, a little stream that's kind of like branching onto that main river. And that's our favorite way of doing things. Like this year, we've had a lot of traction with that and have had a lot of success with current clients and some new clients doing that. But man, there's like so many ways. And another way that I really like, and I have a friend that has an agency that does this, but they use uh, TikTok. You know, TikTok is like one of these things that's super hot, like red hot trendy. And they work with like big brands like Sephora and stuff like that. And there's a component of virality that's built into some of these social platforms that if you understand, you can capture and that really can get you much further. The analogy that I might use for like Google ads or like Amazon ads, is it's just kind of like slow and steady. It chugs along. It's like a faucet where you turn it on and it just keeps the water keeps running through. But if you have TikTok, it's like you've accidentally broken the dam and then you have a deluge <laughs> of, of interest and shoppers and everything. Uh, but figuring out how to how to like break that dam is like very difficult. So those are probably the two biggest ways that we are familiar with and that we like to see. Maybe TikTok, Google search. 
there are a lot more like, I would say less traditional ways, at least in the Amazon space is like post purchase sequences. So you follow up with people, you get their email, you get their text, you know, you get their uh, number and then you follow up with them afterwards. There's ways to do that that are totally compliant with Amazon. So you got to be careful with that. But that's really effective for building like lifetime value. People still use email. Yeah, I know. It seems kind of ridiculous to some of the brands we talk about, but we're like, hey, do you have an email list? Have you sent out a blast to your email list? Uh, people still do this. You know, email is not dead. Email is a great protocol. It's still open. It's for everybody. It's not dependent on any one service provider. There's no gatekeeper. So really, it's super powerful um, still, which is funny to think after all these years that like the hot new thing is email. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's some consistency to it. I'm surprised that there hasn't been something that's really, truly replaced email. I mean, that's the one thing that I probably look at more than anything else throughout my day, aside from text messages. I hate being being sold to over text messages. I'd much rather be sold to over emails. That's my personal taste. I'm interested. I wanted to follow up on this kind of your opinion on you know TikTok versus email advertising and something like that, because what, what I've found is... Some people who attempt to chase virality, specifically in advertising, it can actually backfire. So they're trying to essentially engineer buzz. And, well, you know, we were talking a bit about during the show, the value of authenticity. And anyone who's listened to the show more than once knows that transparency and authenticity, I'm, I'm, I'm really big proponents and fans of. So do you think that that's a, that can provide an obstacle for a brand? If they're trying to chase some sort of buzz and audiences feel like they're being sold to, you know? Yeah, I think you have to consider where the person is when you're reaching them. So the counter example I'll, I'll provide is when people are searching on Amazon or Google, they know they're searching for a product and you're meeting them where they are with what you hope is the thing that they are after. And then you're putting them on that landing page or that product page. So you're just basically mating their intent with what you're offering. Engineering that on TikTok is far harder because someone who's just browsing around, like maybe they don't know. And I know I've just used a Sephora example as my uh, friend's agency has worked with them. Like maybe they don't, they don't know that they need this like uh, mascara or like eyeliner or something like that, but they'll come across it and they'll generate interest by seeing it in a way that is portrayed that like resonates with them. So I think what they do is they, they run ads, you know, they have promoted content that's usually with UGC, you know, user generated content, and they place a lot of small bets. And some of these bets actually pay off. And they're not trying to like stir controversy or anything. <laughs> when yeah. I say virality, I mean like they're not trying to be like, we got canceled, you know, this kind of stuff that that does resonate with a certain population in America. It is possible to, to do that. We've all seen these ads. We all know this. But no, it's just like, hey, this is what works for me. Uh, like here, here am I, like uh, your average, average, uh, average Jane influencer. This is like what's working for me. And this is how I think about this. And some of those things, if they're promoted correctly, they get sewn to the right people. Uh, it'll start to stir in the algorithm and, and, and carry on. Does it backfire? I don't have enough experience, man, to say like, yeah, I've seen it backfire because that's not something that we deal with a lot. I have seen success stories because our clients will occasionally come to us and say, hey, we ran some Spark ads, which are like one of the main um, methods for advertising on TikTok, as I understand it. We did basically what I described. We placed a lot of bets with these kind of UGC uh, content content generators. And then, you know, two or three of them actually got some really good traction. And we saw a demonstrable like uplift in sales for this day or this week based on this. And so, yeah, that, that seems to be the, the method that people are doing. Now, if TikTok is around to stay in the US, I think that remains to be remains to be seen a bit more of an open question. Yeah, I think, you know, it certainly has organic traction. It's not like it, it didn't buy, it, it buy its way to the top. It did it by merit. So uh, I can't really fault it. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think I'm going to bet against it, if I'm being honest. I, I don't know a lot of social media platforms that have stuck around seriously, like claws in of the zeitgeist of like pop culture for 10 or 15 years. I mean, most people don't really use Facebook much anymore. They don't use Twitter as much anymore. I, I think kind of Instagram and TikTok has, has been that those those kind of one and two. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I see those as one and two specifically in the ad space right now. So it'd be interesting to see what that looks like five or 10 years down the road. Just to switch gears, I was curious kind of the differences between running like a Shopify store in an Amazon store and how to kind of leverage both. So if I sell products on Amazon, for example, and have a, we'll say a Shopify store, how how can I approach operating both simultaneously? Is, is it better to leverage my brand to drive traffic to Amazon or, or vice versa? Or, or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, the goal for most Amazon first brands is to build awareness on Amazon to scale up in terms of size, uh, sales volume, catalog, you know, portfolio, brand presence, and then slowly migrate that off Amazon. Amazon sees the customers on Amazon as their customers. They do not see them as your customers. There are ways to be clever with that. Like I mentioned, product inserts earlier. That's one thing that is within Amazon TOS because they can't possibly you know, stop everybody from doing that. As long as you don't put something in there that's like, please leave a five-star review or else, <laughs> which will definitely get <laughs> you in else. trouble. Yeah, or else. Uh, that will absolutely get you in trouble. Do not do that. Um, but you can say, hey, um, this is our warranty or like uh, you scan this QR code to enter this giveaway for like another product. You know, this is not tied to reviews, by the way. No giveaways and reviews. Don't do that. And then take those customers off. You know, the, the trend that I've seen with many of the brands we work with is they start Amazon native or sometimes they start with like a Kickstarter or something. They get a lot of traction on Amazon, give that a couple of years, and then they start to migrate out. You know, the ultimate objective for a lot of these brands is to have their standalone Shopify, WooCommerce, whatever DDC website eclipse the revenue that they have on Amazon. The reason for that, like I said, Amazon thinks it's their customers and you have lower margins on Amazon. But the bonus of Amazon is like the eyeballs and the ease. You know, the marketplace is already there. The audience is already there. All the infrastructure is already there. That was kind of the dream in 2015, like I mentioned earlier. A lot of people wanted to have, you know, digital nomad lifestyle, start an e-com business set up products. Um, you know, Amazon handles fulfillment, they handle this, they handle that. The reality is now most Amazon businesses have a margin that's anywhere from like 15 to 20%. Like 15% is like very normal now. And that's low, by the way. So like if you are selling uh, D2C, usually your margins are like way better than 15%. But Amazon takes a lot of fees, category fees. There's advertising, which of course we manage. And that's like a necessary component to a large extent. But these things need to be carefully balanced. You know, think, think of it like a series of scales. You're trying to keep everything in equilibrium. If you run out of stock, that could be really bad. If you uh, have product sourcing costs go up, which we certainly saw during COVID, after COVID. If you have supply chain problems, if it's not redundant, that's going to give you issues. So there's a lot of fragility in that system, which I think was laid bare during the pandemic, especially if your supply chains were long. But most businesses are trying to eventually, let's say, graduate from Amazon. Now, they'll still stay there and hopefully they'll have a nice slice of revenue there because it can be a new customer acquisition channel if you do it right. But generally speaking, that's the way they do it. The other way that I've seen is bigger brands that are already established that are in brick and mortar, that are in Walmart, which is like, you know, one of the, the king's. Uh, of like in-person retail in the US, of course. They go to Amazon with a very different perspective. For them, it's another sales channel they're expanding into. 
But Amazon is such a unique beast that they kind of need to work with agencies or hire multiple people in-house to like make sense of how to make it work. Because it's not like you can just put your content on like, I forget what they call it, but there's like these content distribution systems where you're like, all right, here's our photos, here's our bullet points, and it'll just distribute it to like 15 different marketplaces. And then we sell in all those marketplaces now. I think it's called an ERP. You can't really do that with Amazon. (laughs) Amazon has its own way of doing things. You have to pay attention to all their rules and you have to look at your feedback and because they do things the Amazon way. So that's like the other way to look at it. And we work with both brands. We work primarily with like 3P sellers that are coming from the bottom up rather from the top down. But both are interesting to work with and provide their own like set of challenges. And I can imagine Amazon is going to be incentivized to have companies compete with each other. I mean, that's just kind of like capitalism 101 is that competition is going to be best for them. So having the end goal be to move away from that where, you know, they're diametrically opposite things where I want my product to be sold and Amazon's going to want every product possible to be sold there. So I think that makes a lot of sense, just logically, Brent. So thank you. Yeah, they call it the infinite shelf, actually, Alex. And I kind of disagree that it's infinite because most people don't look past, you know, page two of the search results or the ads that show up. But, you know, Jeff Bezos has a famous somewhat cryptic quote, which is like, your margin is my opportunity, which is basically like saying, we're going to be the ones that at scale are able to come in and undercut. We're the ones who are going to enforce a map. So Amazon has done something for years, which is basically if you're selling on their marketplace and they find your product uh, cheaper other places, they're going to either like ban you from the buy box or they're going to lower your price. They're going to make sure that they have the most attractive price because their whole thing, their whole nexus is like, you know, one of the world's most customer centric companies. And what does that mean? Low prices is one of those things like low prices, fast delivery, good customer service, these kind of things are like the triad of Amazon's existence. Now, if they've been able to reach that uh, the last couple of years, I don't know. But that's like something that's very core to them. When you speak to people at Amazon, they always want to understand how it's going to help the end customer and where's the data to back it up. It's part of their culture. It's very fascinating to talk to people from, from Amazon. And one of the other things that you were touching on that I talked with the CEO of Debutify about recently is the value of, of reviews and how that word of mouth can impact a brand, a product, or, or Amazon as a whole. So how important, in your opinion, are reviews and garnering reviews when trying to market products on Amazon? It's one of the most critical things. And Amazon, a few years ago, actually, Alex, made a distinction. So you have ratings and you have reviews. Ratings is where you, Alex, have a purchase on Amazon. You go in, you give it four stars. You don't give any explanation. That's a rating. A review is, here's a photo, here's two paragraphs about why it's awesome or why it sucks. (laughs) So Amazon uh, will will weight reviews and ratings differently. And they look at uh, individuals' uh, rating history and actually weigh it differently. So the average you see on Amazon is actually a very fairly calculated average, in my opinion. They've had problems with it in the past, but like... The reality is for any online purchase, and this is just data from the top of my head, you know, our clients, they usually have a one to 3% review rate. So hundred products purchased, three reviews. Like that's normal. That's tiny, right? Anything you can do to get that up is going to, is going to make a huge impact on your like standing on Amazon. And you can take reviews to the bank. Like they're, they're literally worth money. We saw this action the last couple of years of people buying Amazon businesses and aggregators buying sometimes individual ASINs, like individual product listings on Amazon, because, hey, it has 10,000 reviews. That, that's like starting That's like starting the 100-meter race uh, 70 meters uh, from, from the start line. <laughs> it's like anyone else trying to get out the gate, you're already that far ahead. So it, it is absolutely critical to have in place some kind of system for gathering reviews, 
weeding out ones that are bad if possible and like catching dissatisfied customers before they do that. And you know, there's a there's a halo effect. Like this is something I do a lot. Maybe you've done this. You're looking at something online and you want to buy it from the website, maybe because it's you know better shipping, you want to support the company more directly instead of giving margin to Amazon. And you just look at the reviews on Amazon first. You're like, this is the place where I'm gonna vet this. And there are extensions actually out there that'll help you, you know, weed out the reviews in Amazon that are suspect and the ones that are good. I've noticed that generally speaking, the extensions are getting less and less useful because the reviews are, are more and more clean these days. Yeah, Amazon's kind of like a source of truth, right? So people check that not only if they're buying on Amazon, but everywhere else on the web. No, I think that's a, a great way to think about it is, you know, you don't even have to financially support that business, but you can still use the service that it's providing. And that is a, a bit of a marketplace of people buzzing, talking about the products. And, and you don't, it's kind of like going to just hang out at the mall. And instead of actually going into the stores at the mall a little bit, pretty old school way to think about it. But well, I was just thinking it's like the mall strikes back, you know, because Amazon killed the mall. But now maybe the mall, like in that analogy, the mall yeah. strikes back. You go to the mall to look at stuff and buy it because you can't do it on Amazon, you know. Yeah. And same day delivery. So what are some some of the easier ways that brands can increase their visibility on Amazon? Yeah, sure. So when we think about visibility on Amazon, that usually means like being found in search because that's the way that most people come to products on Amazon is they go there and they type in a search query. First two pages, like you were mentioning. Yeah, first two pages. Or if you're on mobile, it's that's like an infinite scroll. And by the way, you know, more than 50% of traffic is mobile. So never forget mobile is huge, whether on app or on the website. And the reality is in a lot of developing countries, like let's say India, for example, which has a massive population and is more and more online every day. Most people there, their first uh, internet connected device is an Android phone. It's not a laptop. It's not a desktop computer like you and I had Windows 95 in our parents' basement, you know, dialing up on the internet. No, no, no. These people are on 5G. They have fast connections and they have, uh, you know, uh, Amazon app on their phone. So they're shopping on mobile. And that's important to remember. That's an infinite scroll for, for the most part. You can just keep going on that. Yeah. I mean, visibility is, is about addressing the two areas uh, that matter to Amazon. So there's like the art side of it, which is like, how's your copy? What's the brand perception? What's unique about it? Visually, how does it look? How do the videos make people feel when they look at it? And that's the art and the human side. And then there's the robots side, which is like, are you using the right keywords? Is it structured properly? Amazon has what's called a flat file, which is a, a very, very boring uh, topic I don't want to get into. <laughs> but basically, imagine like structured data inside of a very large spreadsheet. Amazon loves an Excel spreadsheet. And you can fill in all sorts of wonderful fields and data in there. And if you do that, then people searching will know, oh, this is uh, keto. Oh, this is like gluten-free. Oh, this is like a veteran-owned business. You know, there's other things that can pop up on Amazon. So you can um, get these badges, get these modifiers, be found in search. And because what you're doing is just filling out metadata for the search engine to properly index you. So like I said, it's this robot side and then the art creative side. And you need to mesh those two together. It's a little bit of each. I wouldn't say it's like too heavily weighed on either one because you can have all the keywords in the world. But if your listing is like sterile and uninteresting, it doesn't excite anybody, they might get there, but they're not going to convert. And Amazon takes every click, every conversion, every add to cart every action on page as a signal, right? So if no one's converting, they're going to stop promoting your product as much. It's not going to do well in the rankings. It's probably not even going to be affordable to advertise. It's really a blend of those two things and, and figuring those two things out. And I think you're touching on something extremely valuable, Brent, and that is ease of access, especially with certain demographics, certain cultures of 
seeing something, immediately getting on on my phone and thinking about buying it, that it is important to kind of cater to that impulsiveness, you know, that 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 people can have instead of kind of being so in-depth and and over the top and over copy that feels like it's selling me. Sometimes people just want something that verifies something I already know because I see it, I want it, just give me a reason why to get it, you know, confirm my own biases, you know? I love that framing. Yeah. Confirm my belief for me, please. <laughs> I will yeah, buy your thing. Realistically, that's how I think sometimes. That's how other people think. I mean, if I hear one person say, someone that I trust say, hey, you need to get this sort of microphone equipment, this specific one, I'll go, okay, I'll go online, most likely hear or read something that is echoing what he just told me. And I don't really need to get a second opinion. You know, that's how I am as a shopper. And I, I feel like a lot of other people are like that. So how is it kind of trying to be able to cater to both types of shoppers, ones that could be like me who who are impulsive? I'm generally a decisive person. I know I'm kind of rambling a bit, but when I go to the grocery store with my significant other, she'll spend five minutes figuring out which checks mix to get. And I'm like, boom, this one right off the shelf. You know, I, <laughs> I, I'm just a much more impulsive and decisive shopper She's much more, you know, looking at the prices, what's kind of the calorie count, that sort of thing. So how are you able to cater to both audiences, specifically on Amazon? That's a wonderful question. And I like how, Alex, you got no time for checks Mix, man. You are just in and out. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you're making that decision. I do, I'm you a 20-minute grocery shopper, man. The sweet one, the salty one, corn, I don't care. Boom, done. I love it. Yeah, I usually get lost in some of the aisles. I live in France, by the way. So some of the supermarkets here have like three aisles of just like yogurt. It's a big thing in France. People love yogurt. So that you get lost in those yogurt aisles and that's where my head starts to spin. I don't feel that same way online. I mean, I think what a lot of people do on Amazon, I and mean, this bears out in the data, is they will buzz through the Amazon ecosystem. They'll add a bunch of stuff to cart, but adding it to cart doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to buy it. Because if you look at the rate from cart ads to purchases, for some products, it's incredibly low, especially higher ticket items, you know, three, $400. We have clients that sell stuff that's even like over $1,000 US. And those have a lot of cart ads. People consider it. They come back to it after a couple of days, maybe. They wait for it to have a coupon or the price to drop, which by the way, is a little Amazon uh, shopper tip. You can get an email when they drop the price or a coupon goes live and you can save some money. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a classic move. And so I think there is still comparison shopping going on. But at the same time, Amazon's whole conceit with Prime is like as much friction as there is with online shopping, remove it. You know, literally, I think they, they patented one click, right? Like one click checkout, which I use all the time for Kindle books because they're digital, right? So I get a book recommendation from a trusted source. Like you said, I was an entrepreneur friend who says, oh, you got to read this book. I buy it immediately. You know, I don't think twice about it. It's $10, 12, 12 euros, whatever. It's not enough for me to like, think about. And then I'll get, I'll get to it. But obviously higher ticket items, it requires like a longer consideration period. I think it also really depends on demographics. Um, I'm going to pick on the Germans a little bit because uh, I got a lot of German friends in the ecosystem here. I live close to Germany. I, I go there for conferences occasionally, but there's massive cultural differences between a society that is like the US where uh, consumerism is like a, a group sport and like everyone is in it and like buying stuff all the time. Versus Germany, where they're very interested in durability and quality and the specifications of something. They're not so focused on price. They want to own it for years. Famously, copywriting in German, you know, already difficult if, uh, because of the language, but secondarily difficult because the things that Germans are interested in is not really the same kind of stuff that Americans are. They're not interested in your long story about how you grew up in the suburbs and your, your dog did this. And so you made this dog toy, which is like the best dog toy ever. They want to know like, 
how large it is, what materials it's made out of. Is it high quality? Is it going to last? Will the dog get sick? Well, how will the dog enjoy it? They want to know all the specific details and specifications. They're not interested in like the marketing um, stuff where I might be more taken by that. Maybe you, because of our you know shared American cultural background, will be like, oh, that's such a cool story about that dog toy. I don't know how long it is. It doesn't matter. <laughs> and then you might order it and be like, oh, it's too small. My dog's actually like a huge dog. That's one difference always to keep in mind for um, these listings and for consideration is, you know, who, who is the culture you're addressing here? And Amazon is in many countries now. They're in like half of Europe. Sweden was fairly recent. Uh, Poland a couple of years ago, launching in South Africa and Colombia this year with any luck. So they continue to expand. And all these cultures are, are very different, very different places. I mean, I think the, the two that are probably the most similar are Canada and the US because, you know, our North American brothers there, uh, we have a lot in common with them culturally. But everywhere else, you know, UK and, and US, quite different. Obviously, France, Germany, quite different. Poland versus Colombia, you know, those two places couldn't be more different. So when you are a brand scaling across all these uh, marketplaces, if you're lucky enough to, you know, to do that, each of these marketplaces has to be tackled with a different context. I'm not sure if that answers the question too directly, but I'm fascinated by these cultural differences as someone who travels in Europe for business and for pleasure a lot. No, I love it. I mean, on a previous episode, I was talking with uh, a gentleman, Dwayne Brown, who lived in Canada and lived in three different continents, six different cities, traveled to 40 different countries. And we kind of we're, we're breaking down the similar thing and just how fascinating it is that people still can have the same goal. And that's, I need to buy this thing. But the parameters in which they decide to actually buy that thing can be diametrically opposite. So I, I think that very, very fascinating to me. To kind of switch gears a little bit, what is your favorite ad type right now? On Amazon and the ecosystem itself or off Amazon? Probably off Amazon to get people to uh, a product on Amazon. Yeah, I, I think quite simply like like I said, we just use Google ads. That's our main, that's our main external traffic method. Now we use Google ads with what's called an, an image extension. So this gives a little bit of visual flair because we all know what Google search looks like because it hasn't really changed much for the past like 15, 20 years. <laughs> Maybe AI is going to shake that up soon, but you know, for the time being, it's like, okay, here's a bunch of text and here's like a page with results. If we can have a visual representation, you know, a high quality image of our product on the page, then that is something that we find has higher click-through rate and is more eye-catching and will drive people to Amazon knowing full well what it looks like before they even get there. I'll throw in like my bonus answer, which is if we're talking about internal Amazon advertising, because you know the majority of what we do is this internal Amazon advertising. They have their own ecosystem, they have their own media network. And the one that's probably the most exciting for me is what's called sponsored brands video. So it's basically like, give us like a 25 to 30 minute video clip. It can be a lifestyle. It can be uh, user generated, like let's say portrait style, um, you know, mobile phone video. It depends on the product. It depends on the um, circumstance and the keyword. But those are really exciting because it's like Amazon's finally coming into, uh, you know, the modern era, embracing video a lot more in the past year and a half. And we've been rolling that out wherever possible. They even have like a little um, video builder inside of their interface that you can use if you don't have like a Hollywood studio at your back or uh, a good team of like video editors on hand. You know, not too hard to come by these days. But if you want to whip it up yourself and have some footage, go for it. So that would be my answer. Those two things are, are exciting. No, and the ability to film and video anything very quickly is fascinating to me. You know, I told you before the show that I have a, a background in production. I've worked in, in TV and music videos and stuff like that. I actually have to have to film something later today. My argument in filming stuff is 
everyone can do this on their iPhone. So if you hire me to do it, you will separate yourself from the herd. And I know that feels kind of like a a cheesier pitch, but I think that is the reality is it kind of holds that two space, those two spaces at the same time is everyone has the access to do it. So everyone's very okay at it, you know, and everyone can maybe garner some sort of whether that's following or profit, revenue, financial support, whatever. But that's not like their day job. It's like auxiliary stuff to help me make more money for my business. So I don't necessarily need to spend money on it because I can do it to myself. I just think that ease of access is is something that I've noticed just explode in the last like three years. Honestly, I think people learned a skill set during COVID and now are kind of trying to implement it a little bit. Yeah, I think that accelerated it. I'm exceedingly mediocre at videos myself. I'll um, I'll chime in on that. I, I'll say one thing, which is um, the first time I saw that kind of emerge was with Vine, RIP sure. Vine. I loved Love Vine. Vine. That was like such a great app. That was probably my favorite social media app ever to exist because it was such a weird, quirky kind of like, and I think it was ahead of its time, honestly, because now we have all, you know, TikTok, obviously, and Instagram Reels and all these other video formats, YouTube Shorts. And it was just just ahead of its time. But that was when it really opened my eyes to like, oh, someone with like an iPhone 4G, which is like, you know, the fifth or sixth iPhone, not even like that advanced compared to the supercomputers we have now, can make like really compelling short form content just by the nature of their own creativity and mind. And that really democratized a lot of that stuff, opened up a whole new world for me because I had been, you know, a user of Twitter at that point, but that was all just text, right? That's great too. But yeah, when there's like short form video, it changes everything. And people are very familiar with that format now. I think everyone's kind of accustomed to seeing that so much so that some of the videos that we do run for clients or work quite well in the Amazon ecosystem are these kind of like low production value videos. Now we have clients that spend, you know, $10,000 to have a professional video shoot and they can use that not only with Amazon, but like on like, you know, real commercials online and stuff like that. But proof of concept, handheld portrait mode stuff also works surprisingly well. I mean, we have the data to bear that out. So much so that I, I was really surprised when we first started doing it. I was like, there's no way this is going to work. But it does actually. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and, and that totally puts a punctuation mark on what I was trying to kind of lead into. So I, I, I really appreciate your insight, your opinion on that. And personally, with when it comes to Vine, I think that its popularity and, and nostalgia from people our age is kind of from that originality. You never would come across two that were ever the same. And I don't know how many kind of Instagram reels or, or TikToks where I have to see a person on the street with their, you know, their cell phone with a microphone on it, talking to some person who's like, you know, what do you do for a living? And, and it's just like so repetitive that it feels watered down and authentic. Like I'm chasing views or people are hiring other people to do something that is so formulaic at work. People throwing ping pong balls into cups just pops up everywhere. And I, I, I just keep, <laughs> I keep hitting show me less, but it doesn't work. But, but that's, that's, you know, I'm on my Lewis Black, like old man rant type thing here now. I'm interested if a brand sells an extremely similar product to another brand on Amazon, speaking of competition, how can they compete or increase their visibility and in turn their market share over a competing product that is 
essentially, you know, the same on the surface. What are those differences that they can make? Yeah, that's a really tough question, man. So, you know, what we've seen with a lot of products on Amazon is someone will discover a, usually in the Amazon space, they call it a niche, right? Oh, it's a niche. I found this, uh, I found this like money niche, this keyword that no one's exploiting. And they'll source a product, they'll get it in there, they'll get some good reviews, they'll iterate on it, they'll make it better, they'll make it better. Soon enough, it will pop up on the radar of other people and they'll say, ooh, this product in this space is um, doing quite well. Why don't we chase those same dollars? And then that keyword or that niche, you know, in in this kind of surrounding demand stream, let's call it, will get exploited by multiple uh, companies, brands, people sourcing. What we've seen the last couple of years also is the rise of primarily Chinese factories, because that's where many, many things in the world come from. But of course, many other things come from Southeast Asia, or Central Eastern Europe, and they are getting in in the game directly. So the question becomes, if you are sourcing products from China, but the factory or a factory that's almost the same thing is doing the same thing and putting them on Amazon, and now they have ChatGPT and other AI tools to help them with branding and marketing and all the aspects we talked about earlier that make a product stand out, what can you do to differentiate and stand out? You have to have a moat of some kind because they're going to be able to undercut you on cost. And I think as Seth Godin said, the worst thing about a race to the bottom is you might win. And then nobody has any margin at all. (laughs) And this is absolutely what has happened on a lot of niches or sub-markets on Amazon these days, Alex. And uh, yeah, it's it's definitely worrying. I'm not sure I have a great response to that besides to say your brand is probably your best moat. Uh, what you do and how you can address the culture is probably your best moat. So, okay, let's just assume this is a scenario. There's a factory in China that's sourcing the same product you have, but they don't have the same kind of follow-up sequence. They don't have the same kind of intelligent branding. They don't have the same social media presence you do. They don't have an email list that they can use to direct people um, to, to Amazon and like boost sales that way. They don't have the same kind of on-the-ground presence. These are the moats that you have to use. It's no longer just oh, uh, our keywords are better than their keywords and we're slightly smarter at ad spend than they are. Those things are all necessary. That's table stakes. But you have to have some other kind of moat to protect you because, um, yeah, they're storming the castle to continue the moat analogy. <laughs> yeah, and, and and I think there's something to be said for the tangible, you know? Like, we are better how? Show me the money a little bit, you know? So I, I think that helps me at least a little bit to not just cater to my confirmation bias if, if someone's like, I think you're better, but tell me how, tell me why. I'm interested in your last eight years, you know, we've talked about how that is practically a lifetime in the e-commerce community and, and in Amazon's trajectory. What are the biggest changes that you've seen in the last eight years when working with Amazon? Yeah, the first thing is that advertising has gone from what I would call a hobby at Amazon. Like honestly, in the early days, it felt like they had a couple of interns that they hired and they asked one of their bosses, they said, hey, can we do like advertising? And they were like, yeah, sure, kid, here you go. Here's like 20,000 bucks. There's an extra server in the closet over there. Go for it. So it's something that actually is Amazon's probably their biggest bright spot on their most recent you know, quarter one earnings. As we're recording this, the Amazon's quarter one earnings came out last Thursday, so like a, like a week and a couple of days ago. Yeah, AWS growth has slightly slowed. Their marketplace is kind of stagnant, but their advertising grows quarter over quarter uh, and year over year by like double digits, 15, 21%. And so it's no longer a hobby. Amazon has like 8% of the advertising domestic market in the US now, digital advertising. They are third after Google and Facebook. Google's the biggest. I'm just rattling this off the top of my head. Some of those numbers might be a little bit inaccurate, but like the idea is all roads lead to digital advertising eventually. And 
I am worried, if I'm totally honest with you, that Amazon's reliance or focus on advertising, which is great money, you know, they're starting to get a little bit addicted to it, is going to run counter to their main goal of customer experience, you know, customer first user experience, because too many ads can start to degrade that customer experience. And I've seen it wax and wane over the years. And I think right now it's kind of at a, it's at a stable point. Uh, I think during the pandemic, they dialed it up a little bit too much and it actually was a problem. It started to hurt their brand perception. So that's the biggest change that I've seen is it's gone from a hobby to a multi-billion dollar a quarter industry that has hundreds of agencies, many service providers, Everyone and their brother is an Amazon ad consultant now. Um, so it's obviously a much more crowded pond. But you know, we're, we're still in the game. We're still doing pretty well. So I guess I can rest easy with that at least. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I'm interested. This is one of the last questions I'll have because I, um, I'm extremely interested in like the production industry and kind of the streaming wars type of thing and how Netflix has rolled out, you know, a, a commercial subscription and Amazon has actually been very steadily rolling out their, their freebie service, which is essentially prime video, but with ads. And I'm interested in your opinion on that. I think that there, that is, is a clear and evident example of exactly what you're saying, Brent. And that's going from have this free content that we're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on to, oh no, we're probably spending too much money. We need some of this back. On the show, we talk a lot about digital advertising, but I'm interested to see if people in the digital space move toward dreaming advertising since that's becoming more of a popular thing, especially I don't think it's unbelievable to think that I can turn on my TV, episode of TV on freebie, an ad comes up for Tide Pods and I can immediately just hit OK and it's going to send me to the Amazon app to buy Tide Pods right there while I'm watching TV. So I'm, I'm kind of interested on your thoughts there. Yeah, that's uh, really prescient. Um, that that's a great insight because the reality of what you're describing it, it already exists. Because essentially, what we've talked about so far with advertising, we've really focused on like bottom and mid funnel. But there's a whole world of like top of funnel. Um, people call it tofu, which I like just because the acronym is great. Top of funnel, which is like, hey, if you're a Ford Motor Company, you want to I have a new truck like the F-150 Lightning or whatever that one is, right? You want to get the word out about that. Well, you can work with Amazon and you can get your ads for that on what do they do Thursday Night Football. I think they have rights to that. They have, you know, major TV shows that are like super popular. They have 150, 140 million prime members in the U.S., not even to mention uh, European countries and other places. And so that is a massive cookie-less engaged shopper and, and customer uh, base. So they are looking at more and more ways to scale advertising to those. And that is becoming a bigger and bigger part of what Amazon is communicating with us as agencies too. So that's absolutely happening. Another thing you might find interesting is there's, there's voice ads now, like audio ads, because you know Alexa is a hugely popular device. There's actually audio ads that play. Uh, we don't run any of these for our clients. They're in beta right now. For a lot of for a lot of people, but it's possible to do that. It's absolutely possible to have a fire stick and turn it on and see an advertisement for um, something. <laughs> I can't think of a good example. Maybe Ford Motor Company, you know, the lightning car again. Twitch is owned by Amazon. IMDb is owned by Amazon. Diapers.com is owned by Amazon. They own several photography blogs that they bought many, many, many years ago. Zappos, the shoe company. All these platforms have users and data that's all being exchanged. And Amazon has something now called Marketing Cloud, which basically allows you to tie together these different touch points and understand what a customer journey might look like. So it's possible that you could... Um, and actually, we've, we've done a test with this with one of our clients. 
they wanted to run like a geo-targeted campaign on Amazon's um, DSP, their demand side platform, which is like display advertising, and then track when people went into Whole Foods in person in the New York metro area and bought a specific product that was their product. And you can actually do that with Amazon Marketing Cloud and DSP. You can tie that together. So that is crazy to me. And then you could say, all right, this person saw this mobile ad on their phone or they watched it on their streaming TV with like a fire stick. And then they went in and they bought this, uh, this like carbonated drink at a Whole Foods in Brooklyn. It's like, okay, we know that because it's the same user because they have different devices and we can track across their account, right? It's not, by, by cookie-less, I mean, it's not cookies like we have for um, web browsing traditionally where it's like, this is a user session. It's like, this is an account. It's account-based. And so for that reason, the data quality is better. And Amazon is betting, I think, really big on using that to have a greater advertising platform over the next five, 10 years as the marketplace, uh, which has never been super profitable for them, is less and less and less of their business. You know, advertising is going to be more of it. Grocery, I think they're betting big on. Advertising is going to be another one, AWS. So my prediction, if I had to make one, is like, yeah, the marketplace is going to diminish in importance. And these other things are going to come to the fore. Yeah, who knows what they're going to do next with advertising. They're certainly putting their full muscle behind it. Yeah, we'll check in a year to five to figure out how our predictions are doing, Brent. Yeah, time capsule here. Yeah, I love it. Before we wrap up, the last question I always ask guests to revolve around essentially the importance of mental health stability in an industry that is extremely stress-inducing and demanding. I think it's important to value work-life balance, work-life harmony. So Brent, what are some things that you do in your free time to ensure a healthy mental health in such a stressful industry? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll say one thing about work first, which is my like hack, I guess I didn't realize till I was probably like in my late 20s is understand what time of day I'm most productive naturally and guard that time like it's precious, absolutely precious time. Do not allow distractions to pull you away. Don't let people take you in other directions. Don't let your team do this. Like this is your precious time. Guard that. And then the time when you're off and you know you're not so great, that's the time you can use to read or take a nap or take a walk or whatever. So that is like my number one tip. If I had to give one, that's not always possible. And I worked in offices and other things, retail for many years where you can't really do that. But if you set your own schedule, you can. And boy, is that a luxury because everyone I think has a chronotype or like a natural rhythm that they find themselves in. The other thing for me is a really easy answer, man. I'm a really big cyclist. <laughs> I'm really into cycling. I ride two, three times a week, depending on um, depending on the weather and how I'm feeling. I got a bunch of different bikes. I live in France. So cycling here is a big part of the culture. Uh, I'm also into hiking and swimming and stuff like that, camping. But Generally speaking, yeah, uh, cycling and forms of like yoga and flexibility are like my big my big things I'm into. No, that's great. I love it. I love that first advice too because people always give me grief because I'm most productive at like midnight or something like that. That's your thing, man. You're the night owl. You're the night owl. I think that's the chronotype. <laughs> and it is what it is, you know. There's not a lot of people texting me or calling me at, at midnight. So that's that's a time that I get a lot done. Look, Brent, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Good luck with AMC Pathfinder. It's been a blast, man. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Alex. I could do this for another 30 minutes. Thanks for flowing with me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Have a good one. You too. I'd like to thank my guest, Brent Zaradnik, for joining me on the show and come back on Tuesday when I talk with Isra Alrawi, the CEO of The Winbox, as well as an e-com lifecycle and growth marketing manager, email strategist, and deliverability expert. For more information about Brent, you can connect with him on LinkedIn, check out his link tree at brent.bike, or join his community of fellow Amazon advertisers at corecommunity.io. To learn more about AMZ Pathfinder, you can check out their website, amzpathfinder.com, or subscribe 
subscribe to their YouTube channel at AMZ Pathfinder. That's our show. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you come back to find new episodes being published every Tuesday and Thursday. Until then.